uh, it's actually a wonderful blessing that we have here. Think about it each week when we come. And uh, Tim brings such wonderful, wonderful messages, doesn't he? He tackles the tough subjects, doesn't shy away from them, and just gives us what he really feels the Lord gives him to share with us. I think of it as uh, a Denny's Grand Slam. You've been to Denny's, you get the Grand Slam, right? There are so many plates, you can't fit them on the table. I mean, they're all over the place. And one fork. You can pick and choose, you can eat, you, you are there forever. Boy, it's all so good. Well, this morning I would like to introduce you to the Happy Meal. <laughs> My prayer just is that this morning you will get a toy in that package that you will play with for a while. And if you're a collector, you'll hang on to it so that it gains value as it gets older. But uh, when Tim uh, first asked me, I remember the first time he asked me to preach, he was smart. He only gave me a week's notice. And um, I thought about what would give us the greatest impact. What, what can I share that, you know, that, that I think we need? What's, what's going to make an impact in our world? What do we need? What do we use right here, this congregation, this room, at the Crossing Church. I spoke from what I knew best. Slow down, proceed with caution, follow God. So uh, this time he gave me a little more warning. And uh, it's interesting though that when he approached me, I had a much better idea of what I wanted to talk about today. as I look out at our world and I see so much chaos going on, what can I say to a congregation? What can we do as believers? How can we make a difference? This body right here at the crossing in a world that, that needs clarity. Where would I start? I decide on forgiveness. It was just something I felt we needed more than anything in this world. So Tim, in all of his wisdom, said, listen, um, it's July 4th weekend. Is there any way you can tie that into something patriotic? I thought about it, and, and you'll have to forgive me because probably only those who are over 50 would remember this, but the only thing I could do to tie in forgiveness to anything patriotic is this. You remember Robert Morley's commercials for British Airways, right? And he would be in his bowler hat and he'd be walking around with a stick and he'd be walking all over England's, England telling us what a wonderful place it is to visit. And then he would end with the phrase, do come home, all is forgiven. That's all I got. So um, that's, as, that's as patriotic as I could get to tying it into forgiveness. Uh, Sorry. Um, but as I, I thought about it, there's, there's really a lot to talk about in this subject of forgiveness. It's probably one thing that our society could use more than anything else. 
And I have to honestly say, I don't know how many Christian voices are out there sharing it. Because if we were, the world would probably be in a different place. By the time I thought about it, I realized that, you know, this is not something that is going to be covered soup to nuts in, you know, one 30-minute sermon. So I decided to take three hours. No. I realized that this is, this is something you can't, you can't give a formula to make it work. And it may actually make us a little uncomfortable to think about how can we make it work? Because it may take us out of our comfort zone. I remember a uh, cartoon. Now, as I was a kid, everybody knew the perfect gift to give me. For the first 10 years of my life, anybody only gave me joke books. And there was one that someone gave me. They were church jokes. Who knew? But there was one of a uh, preacher, there was a cartoon, I remember, of a preacher standing at the back door and somebody, it was, you know, as everybody was leaving, he was speaking to everybody. And one fellow was so enthusiastically shaking his hand saying, Pastor, that was, a, that was the most inspiring message. That was convicting. That was, wow, you really got into that subject of sin. How did you get to be such an authority on a subject? And I thought to myself, well, how do we get to be an authority on a subject? I come to you this morning as one who has been a recipient of great forgiveness. That's my authority. And so I, I share with you this morning what, what I think we can do. I'm not the guy with the theological degrees. I, I was not a seminary student. Matter of fact, when Nancy, Nancy, you're Nancy Vorbeck, she'll tell you, because we went to college together and we were even in the same Bible class several times, some of which I took several times. <laughs> I'm not a great theologian, but I know what God has done for me. And I know what God can do for you. And I want to move you to the place where you can begin to forgive if you can't. Or to realize the greatness of God's forgiveness. That's where we want to go. See, I want to talk not about the act of forgiveness so much as I do want to talk about the impact of forgiveness. See, uh, we can talk about what act, you know, how, is, how does this forgiveness, well, we talk about the reasons, we talk about how it happens, we talk about how to forgive and when to forgive and who to forgive. We can get all of that down, but frankly, a lot of that we could just put into a formula, check, 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 I forgave. I want to talk about what happens after forgiveness is given. What difference is that going to make in our world? in your life, in our congregation. How is that going to change us? I think we know a lot about 
the act of forgiveness. We've read about it. We've heard about it. Tim has preached on it. We don't know a lot. I shouldn't say we don't know a lot. We haven't talked a lot about what happens afterwards. How does that impact others? How does that impact us? How does it impact our church? Who of us has never felt that impact? We all have, right? At some point. Haven't we all had something? And, and take a moment. I want you to think about some point where you were forgiven of something great. It was just something that was bugging you. It may not even have been a big issue, but it became a big issue to you and became a weight that just wore down on you and began to impact everything else around you. The way that you spoke to your family, the way that you spoke to your coworkers, it just began to weigh down. And I want you to think about the feeling of relief, the liberation that comes when that is forgiven, when that burden is free. You go to somebody and you apologize and they say, I forgive you. When that burden is lifted, boy, isn't that, isn't that the best? Right? Don't you feel like a, a, a plant that just grew out of the ground and all of a sudden, man, that flower blossomed. Oh my goodness, it's wonderful. Right? That's a feeling we get. And my question then is, how did that impact you? What did you do about that? What did you do? Did you want to go out and forgive somebody else? Did you love that person a little more? Did you praise God? You came to church that Sunday. How did that impact you? How does this forgiveness impact us? <clears throat> now, in our house, uh, we, we do spend some time watching television. We, we, now, here's, here's the deal in our house, okay? I like the History Channel. American Pickers. Uh, every guy likes American Pickers, right? I mean, this is, these are guys. They will go through your junk and pay you. Wonderful guys. I've enjoyed the show so much, we actually went to their shop in Iowa, got pictures, that's the important thing for me, got a picture by their truck. They weren't anywhere as near the place, but you know, I got a picture by their truck. History fan. My wife is a homework fan. How come that doesn't get a reaction? She's a, she's a Hallmark fan. Now, a lot of times I'll come downstairs and I'll come downstairs and, and she'll be watching television and she'll say, I'm sorry, honey, I just got to see the end of this movie. And I'm like, I can tell you how it ends. <laughs> it's pretty much the same plot as the other movies that we've watched. And we've watched this one three times. And then I'll say, you know, well, there will be some kind of a, it's, by the way, it's always a marathon, it's cable, they play everything 17 times. They taught us how to binge watch. So the movie will be over and she'll say, you can watch anything you want. So I know she's not a fan of history. So I scratched that off the list. My second choice, of course, is uh, either the treehouse guy or the fish tank guys. 
and I'll put them on. And she'll say, that's okay, honey. We have another television. <laughs> the last thing I want is that when I'm home that we spend our evenings in separate quarters watching television. So we find something that we like together. One of those shows that we like to watch is Undercover Boss. There you go, right? We all like Undercover Boss because nice things happen with Undercover Boss. And yes, I watch the reruns, which is amazing to me because you would think that uh, they got, they figured it out the first time that he was the boss. Why they don't recognize him the second time, I don't know. <laughs> the premise of the show is very simple. A CEO goes undercover in his own company. He puts on this most ridiculous, hideous disguise. Why they don't figure that out in the first place may be a reason why they're not the CEO. They get into this work situation and they are auditioning for a job in this company. They are given another employee who is going to work them through and train them in this job. We get to see how much the boss does not know and how much the workers do. The, the reason that the bosses go along with this is to find out what are the faults, what's going on in my company. The reason that it's a successful program is because he often finds out that the people he, have, he has are valuable and they get so duly rewarded. At the end of the program, they all come back together again, only this time they're meeting at the boss's office at headquarters. He reveals to himself that he has been lying for the last week and that he is in fact the CEO of the company and their faces usually go ash and white uh, when they realize there have been times, yes, when the boss got fired. There have been other times when the employee was so deplorable that he would rip off his wig and just say, you're fired. But apparently he has political potential in that case. When they, they do this, I am most fascinated to watch what happens when the, the hard worker, the the people who have put everything they have into this, you know, menial job get rewarded for all of their efforts. In season four, there was a particular episode that, that just struck me because it was exactly what we're talking about today. It was an episode where the CEO of Fat Burger there is a place, there is a chain called Fat Burger. In today's day and age, you would think it'd be difficult to get somebody in that place, but it's a nice, big, heavy, juicy burger and uh, people like it, it's a West Coast thing. And uh, so the CEO of, of Fat Burger went undercover to try and find out what's going on. Well, he went to a particular uh, store out in Mesa, Arizona because this particular store was performing poorly. One of the worst performing in all of the franchise. So he went undercover to see what's going on. When he got there, he met Angelica. She was the assistant manager of the place, a wonderful dear young lady who was trying to work her way through nursing school. Uh, she was hoping to save up money for a wedding. Um, hard worker, happy. Man, you couldn't knock down, you couldn't knock that smile off her face with a, you know, a can of paint. She was just happy all the time. 
Well, what Andy, Andy Wienerman was the CEO, what he found out when he got there was that this particular branch is out of branch dressing. Not a big deal until you all realize that, of course, salads are a big deal on the item. They've been out for weeks, and they haven't gotten any replacements. They were also out of bags, which makes it tough on takeout. And at one point, they were out of meat. He, he's, he's almost ready to reveal himself on the spot until Angelica takes him through and shows him, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to work over here, then we're going to have a very happy. And so we have, okay, now just remember here at the, at the sink, the water faucet doesn't shut off all the way. So we just have to turn it and then push the faucet off to the side because it's going to run. It's just going to drip. And okay, I'll, I'll remember that. They get over to the fryer and this half of the fryer works. So we can cook on this side of the fryer. Sales were at such a low point in that franchise that at one point, paychecks bounced and the workers weren't getting paid. Andy didn't know quite what to do with that, but he was absolutely shaken. After all these things had gone wrong, Angelica still had that smile on her face. And then, he took her outside for a break and they chatted and she shared with him what seemed to be the death blow. She said, by the time we get our paychecks, there's no money in the bank. The only time we see the manager or the owner, same thing, is when something's broken. There's no positive reinforcement. The manager doesn't come around to see how we're doing. And then she ended with, it's like, I'm working for you, but why? Now, she had no idea. She was talking to the CEO who's sitting there saying, I know you're talking about your manager, but you're working for me. Why? Well, the time in the program came along later on when Andy was in his office and he brought Angelica in and he sat her down and he said, I am not whoever that was there, whatever name he went by, I'm really Andy Wiederman. I'm the CEO of Fatburger. Her eyes went huge. As she went on with what was going on, he said, first off, I am going to send our facilities people, right, corporate people, to your building. We're going to fix all those problems. We are going to get, make sure everything is ordered right. We're going to make sure you have supplies on hand. We're going to fix that faucet. We're going to fix the fire. Any, we're going to make that right. There's one more thing that you said. He picked up his phone and made a call. Her boss walked in the room. She was like, oh no, now what do I do? Because I've told a television audience that this guy doesn't care about us. Marcus was her boss and he sat down next to her. And Andy said, you would think Andy would say, Marcus, we have some issues in your store. He didn't. You know what he did? Angelica, tell me what you said before. Tell Marcus what you told me. She had to repeat to this guy 
everything she thought was wrong. That's a tough thing to do. That's a very tough. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to tell somebody something you did not want to tell them? As a matter of fact, you tried to avoid it. You were kind of hoping to talk around it, but now you were dead center and you had to say something that you thought was just, oh my goodness, I don't think I can do this. Well, she mustered up her guts. And she said right directly to Marcus everything that she had said. Expecting an answer and expecting some kind of a, an excuse, Marcus bowed his head and just shook his head. He began to tell her what problems, financial problems, what issues he was having with the business. He says, I don't fix things because I haven't got the money to fix them. And now you don't see me because I'm embarrassed. I, I, I can't face you. I, I avoid because I'm embarrassed. All of a sudden, the whole atmosphere changed. Everything was different. You could see the relationship between Marcus and Angelica began to, to kind of gel because she had compassion for him. Couldn't work for him, but she had compassion for him. But then one final thing happened. Andy stepped in and he said, okay, Marcus, a year ago, you came to us at corporate headquarters and told us you were having difficulties paying your franchise fees and making money. And we tried to help you restructure your finances so that you could make it. I'm going to forgive you that $50,000 loan. Well, Marcus just bowed his head right down and you could see he began to sob. He said, you have no idea what that does for me. He turned to Angelica and he says, I don't want to let you down anymore. And he then offered, he says, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start fresh and clean. We're going to take our best financial people. We're going to set them down with you. We're going to have a plan. We're going to come up with something that is going to work for you for the employees, for the corporation. We're going to have something, and we're going to start afresh, and we're going to get off to a new start. You see, when Andy forgave Marcus of that debt, what was the impact of it? That, that, that Marcus felt better? No. That Marcus turned to his employees, who were his subordinates. He probably had a bit of pride in him because we know he was embarrassed to go be seen by her and he turned to her and he said I don't want to let you down anymore that relationship changed in a minute because of Andy's forgiveness he could have just said listen we're going to restructure everything we're going to figure this out and you're on your own. 
but he didn't. He says, I'm going to relieve the pressure. I'm going to relieve the debt that you owe. We're going to take that pressure off you. You see, forgiveness should make a change in what we do because we want to honor the one who forgave. The beauty of that, of course, that illustration, I just loved it so much because we get to see, don't we, don't we all want to have a fresh start? Don't we all want to have our slates wiped clean? Don't we all want to have, just be able to say, I got nothing against you. Let's get together. Let's not be adversaries. We're starting with a clean slate. Forgiveness is God's nature. It's just what he does. He doesn't think about it, doesn't plan it. He just does it. You think about the inheritance that we have as believers. Now, here's part of, the, part of what's going on. The church in Ephesus, you understand Ephesus was a very uh, kind of happening place. It was a very busy place. It was relatively safe. If you looked at a map where, the, uh, where Greece is, okay, and on the west coast, of, or excuse me, east coast of Greece would be Athens. You look straight across the Aegean Sea, boom, there's Ephesus right there. And it was kind of inland. There was, a, there was a, a, almost a natural canal that went into the city. So it was very, very safe from any kind of predator. So the Christians there were kind of, you know, comfortable. Matter of fact, Paul had spent three years there in Ephesus with a very successful ministry in evangelism, and they were reaching out to everybody in the neighborhoods. They had people all over, outside, around them. It was a great, booming metropolis. The problem was that they were beginning to say what they believed, but they weren't always living what they believed. They had, been, they had been told, and they knew that they had all the treasures of heaven, theirs. But they didn't live like it. They were still trying to make up for things. <sighs> Let me ask you a question. And you can answer out loud, it's fine. How many sins did Jesus forgive at the cross? All, thank you. Past, present, future, we're all future, so every sin we have committed was covered by Jesus at the cross. How many of them do I have to make up for? None. So, at what point do they become so bad that I can't be forgiven? There is no point. Our forgiveness is once for all, everything, all-inclusive, all done, all paid for. We don't have to live as though we still have to make up for something. How often do we do something wrong and we think we got to do something right to make up for it? Look, it's a great gesture, but it's not necessary. Jesus took care of that at the cross. 
I think a lot of times we live like the Ephesians did. We live in this idea, yes, God forgave me, but you know what? There was yeah, this one thing, you know, it's still, it's still hanging around. It, I don't know if he can really forgive me for that. Now, we would never turn around and say, uh, oh, I don't think God could forgive me. We say that we believe God forgives us, but we live like we're not really forgiven for that. We've got to make up for it. The problem is, is that then we begin to forgive in that same way. See, that's not total forgiveness. We begin to act like there are things that you can do that I can't forgive you for. not that's not God's way we have an, an inheritance that God gave us the beginning of this chapter that the bio read for us this morning right in the very first verse I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love you cannot forgive without humility cannot forgive without love. And all of that has been given to you. You have all the treasures of heaven. But do you live like it? One of the things that's interesting that, that Bio read to us this morning, uh, jumping uh, toward the end of that same chapter, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Notice that the example we have here for forgiveness is God. That's the example. That's total. That means that everything that someone would do to me needs to be forgiven by me against them. I need to love that person. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of, of, of malice. My goodness, what in the world were those people doing that Paul had to write like that? God loves you. He cares about you. He forgives. But I'm angry at this guy. That guy did such and such. He's not... He's not getting any favors out of me. We need to act as God did, as our example. Forgiveness takes preparation. Some sort of change has to happen in order for forgiveness to take place. You see, when it, that, that story with, with Andy and Marcus and Angelica and Fat Burgers, when they came together and Andy saw the brokenness of the manager, all of a sudden he stepped in. Changed everything. When he forgave, changed everything. And, and just the opposite of that, by the way, is look at the fruit of, of unforgiveness. Right? We just read it. Bitterness, rage, anger. Have you ever said anything unkind or unfavorable about anyone this week? 
say anything that someone didn't hear that you were hoping they wouldn't hear? Have you been angered at all this week by anyone? Was it a comment that they said? Was it a look that they gave you? Maybe it was a newspaper article, an act of Congress. Could just be something as simple as something unkind that was said to you. It would be fair to respond in like, wouldn't it? We would consider, you know, in, in our society, hey, they did this, I can do this. We, we want to keep the score even. Forgiveness is not an even scorekeeper. Forgiveness is a score eraser. It gets rid of it and puts you back to square one. When I look at, at the newspaper, I see a lot of people, I see things happening in the paper, and I see people responding to it. I hear people at work. I hear people on the streets in my community. And how are they responding? In the same anger that they see coming out of the papers. That doesn't do anything. We just have two groups that are angry now. I wonder what would happen if instead of responding in anger, we answered in love. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say how many of us were upset when we saw children removed from their parents, and everybody's incarcerated. We were all angered by that. I didn't see big throngs of people getting in their car and heading to the border to meet with the children and tell them they were loved. I saw fewer people reaching out to the parents saying, I'll be with you that I care about you, we're going to get through this. That would have made a difference. When we respond with anger, we just make more anger. But anger can be a good motivator for us, too. You know, in the 50s, Fred Rogers, you know, he's my favorite, right? We went over this last time. And by the way, I will just tell you, Yes, I went to see the documentary, and yes, so should you. You've got the whole afternoon. Theaters are air-conditioned. Get over there. Fred watched television for kids, and he was appalled. He looked at TV, and it was a lot of pie-throwing. It was a lot of hitting. It was a lot of noise, clamor, and anything but loving. And he said, that's terrible. But did he turn around and protest? Did he go to the studios and pick at the doors? Did he write letters to executives of networks? No. He got busy and made a TV show that was good. And here we are 50 years after his first broadcast. We're still talking about Fred Rogers. We've made documentaries about his life. And by the way, they're making another movie starting this fall about the impact that he had on a, on a reporter. That starts production. By the way, Tom Hanks is playing Mr. Rogers. So this is a top film that we're talking about what he did that was good 50 years later. Do you remember a single name of anybody who criticized him? They even, in this documentary, they showed a couple of people who were making speeches and how he's destroying our children and so forth. Nobody even knows who those guys are anymore. 
Fred instead chose to do something good and make it good, it made an impact that we're still talking about. How do we get rid of the anger? Well, a few years ago, there was a, uh, a video series I remember watching. And it was uh, by Gary Smalley, and he defined anger very simply as misdirected expectations. Think about it. He says, you come down for breakfast, you sit down to breakfast, coffee maker didn't work today. All right, now you're, now you're, you're on a bad foot, right? You expected that coffee maker to be making the coffee because you're looking forward to that first swallow of coffee. And it's not coming. The best hope you have is folders and crystals. They don't work. So we're, we're annoyed. We're angry about the coffee maker. Then the toaster burns the toast. Man alive, I don't have time for this. I have to get to work. I I expected that that toaster has worked every day for 14 years. Why isn't it working today? Then to top it all off, the worst of all, the car, right? We get out to the car, we are expecting that car to start. Or if you commute, we're expecting the bus to come. But we're more used to that not coming. The car doesn't start. We put our key in, nothing. Not even as much as a click, nothing. Man, we're on a bad place. We're on a bad course because we're angry. At what? The car? Smart move. Car can't get mad back. At what? A toaster that's 14 years old that is bound to break, or a coffee machine that's been kind of growling and gurgling for the last week that you knew was going to break down one of these days, you just hoped it wasn't going to be today. We get angry at these things. So what he suggested was changing our expectations. I know that coffee machine is growling, but unless I replace it, it's going to get worse. And one of these days, it's going to break. Oh, no, it's today. If it works, thank you, Lord. I got my coffee. I'm good to go. But if it doesn't, well, I kind of knew it was going. I'm not angry. Change your expectations of it. The car, I haven't really taken it in for tune-ups, and I haven't changed my oil. I'm, and, and by the way, that battery... I left the lights on last night. The dome light never went out. Car's dead. If we change our expectations of what they are, we know what's going on. We can not be so upset when we realize it's a machine. It's going to break at some point. Change your expectations. What about if that thing that breaks down is a person? What if it's your boss? What if it's your neighbor? What if it's your family?
1993, I faced something I thought I would never face. Divorce papers. Never expected that. I was born in a Christian home. My parents were leading elders in the church. My wife was born on the mission field, grew up in a Christian home. There should have been nothing that ever led to a divorce in our home. But there I faced it. I had anger. I had bewilderment. I didn't know what to do. What was the toughest thing for me to do? Was to realize that I had to change the expectations that I had of my wife. That she wasn't the person that I thought she was. What was worse, I had to realize that she had changed her expectations of me. That I wasn't the husband that she had expected I would be. And I had to come before her, ask for forgiveness. I had to go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. That didn't end well. The divorce went through. Just because I asked for forgiveness doesn't mean that it all went well and everybody was happy. You see, when I went through that, there were two things that I wished. One was I wondered what would have happened had we both laid down our will, let God take control, and see what he could do. Never found out. Never got to find out. The other thing that happened was all I ever wanted out of that was forgiveness. I just wanted to be forgiven. Please, somehow let me know that you forgive me for what I've done. Jump ahead 25 years, I stand here today, and you know my wife, Lee. In two days, we celebrate our 13th wedding anniversary. Now, no, please. If you're going to clap, it's God's grace. Because there are five words that you can hear every day in our house. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And I say, surely I will. No. <laughs> I, the most common thing we do is forgive each other. We have to. You see, our expectations of each other are not for what that person is going to be, but for the fact that we are both imperfect. We're imperfect. We're going to drop each other at some point. We're going to fall apart somewhere. We're going to drop your expectations of me flat. But we're seeking God's forgiveness. You forgive me, I forgive you. The one thing we do expect forgiveness and that's what keeps us together and that's why when we get together in the morning and we pray it's a good day because we come with nothing between us we have a clean slate we're starting fresh 
And God's got a plan that's going to see us through. Every day, we demonstrate for others something deeper than just a behavior. We demonstrate forgiveness. The last portion we have here is be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We have to be imitators of God. He's our example, remember? As dearly loved children, now I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point, but I'm very happy to announce that in the presence of us this morning is one of the most charming and distinguished seven-and-a-half-month-olds that you will ever want to meet. He's my grandson. And the instant that PJ, oh, there he is, he's in the back with his mom. The instant that he was born, I was charged with the responsibility of demonstrating, there he is, yes, amen, that's right, amen. <laughs> I was charged with the responsibility of being an example. Raise that child up in the things of God. Be an example to him. That's right, that's right. You do a little hand wave there for me. You see, we are examples to our children. Our parents were to us. We live every day and we are to our neighbors. We are to our co-workers. If we aren't going to be imitators of God, then we're imitating something else. You know what he's going to, you know how he's going to learn to walk? By watching, yes, he wants, he's going to motivate himself by trying to transport, but he's going to learn how to walk by watching his parents and everybody around him walk. He's going to learn to talk by listening to those, and he's going to learn what to say by the words that we all say in his presence. We need to be imitators of God. Because when we do that, the impact on those around us is immeasurable. When we begin to imitate God, the world becomes a